Welcome to Keep Making, a podcast about people creating their way through life. From artists to business owners to stay-at-home parents, we believe everyone is creative, and we're on a mission to share it. Welcome to the very first episode of Illuminates Podcasts. I'm sitting with Larry Dalbert. Larry Dalbert has, I'd say, a legacy, actually, in the fishing world. Um, you've done everything under the sun um, when it comes to anything that revolves water and gaming fish. And maybe gaming fish is the wrong term, so you're going to have to correct me when I bash up the, the terminology when it comes to fishing. Um, I th- you started giving guided tours when you were 11 years old to executives. Is I'd like to start there um, and kind of like give our audience a little perspective about who you are on some level. Well, I wouldn't exactly call what I was doing a, a guided tour. Uh, what happened, there was an old fellow named Charlie who died. Okay. Who had been a guide for ever and ever. He was a homesteader, actually, up in the part of the world where I grew up. Uh, he died, and uh, Mr. Pillsbury was coming to the fishing camp. Mr. Pillsbury of Pillsbury, like, bakery. Yeah. And uh, they called my dad and said, help, we need a guide. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm going musky fishing Saturday. Take the kid. He knows where the bass are. And so I got a tryout and uh, got a full-time job uh, guiding uh, fly fishermen uh, for smallmouth. So guiding fly fishermen at 11 years old. And the first one was with Mr. Pillsbury. Uh-huh. How do you, that, I'm probably butchered his name there. But we, what other kinds of people were you guiding? It's not necessarily guide, but were you taking on these adventures? Because um, we had a brief conversation yesterday and like they believed you were a savant. You're like this 11 year old that like knows the, the well, lake. What, what it, anybody who's a guide knows what it's like to have to fish every day. Okay. Have to fish every day. Some days it's nice. Some days it's not. Some days you get a guy who's really a good angler. And other times you get somebody that is just, it's really difficult. <laughs> every lure is in a tree. <laughs> and, um, this fellow Pillsbury uh, was a remarkably good caster. Okay. And it was a, a like a private club of, I think, 13 guys. And most of the other guides were older fellows, 40, 50, uh, 60 years old. And uh, they had a lot of experience, uh, but mostly when they fished for themselves. Okay. They fished for walleyes, not for smallmouth. Uh, back then, uh, well, uh, the first sport fisherman was the first man who went fishing when he didn't have to, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And so anyway, the other guides knew generally uh, where which banks, you know, the bass are on and that's probably the most likely place and so on. But as a kid, well, my dad would let me loose sometimes two or three days uh, by myself, uh, camping, no food or water, just, you know, eat little brook trout that I catch in a stream, cook them on a stick and didn't have to brush my teeth or take a bath or anything. I could just do whatever I wanted. And so what I would do, capture crayfish and stuff and i'd climb up in these trees and i'd just look and throw crayfish in see what came out right polaroid glasses hadn't been invented yet so you had to climb the tree just to be able to see what was going on yeah in a lot of places there's no tree but anyhow um as we started floating down the river the first spot i had a spot pretty close to the landing uh, where there was a big orange rock and there was always a i'd, I'd feed this uh, fish crayfish and uh mr pillsbury said wow i've been in this river for 40 years and I've never fished this spot. And I, and I cast a little further to the right. I'll get ready. Fish bites. And I had a bunch of places where I knew where these fish were because I, I 
was dealing with them quite mm -hmm. frequently. And uh, every time I tell Mr. Pillsbury, okay, right here, there'll be one. And Oop. there was one. And he thought I was a savant because you know, he'd been 40 years, no one had ever. And so I got a full-time job and it was uh, not because I was such a good fly fisherman. It was because I was good at catching crayfish and climbing trees. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of like a crazy dream job when you're 11 years old. Oh, I Nick. mean, and when when was this? Like, give me some time frame. So, like, well, I was born in 1949, so I'd be about 1960, 61. So you're giving these, you know, taking these executives down the river and showing them spots that they've never seen before. And well, they, so, how did they keep you in that job? Because, like, obviously, they don't want to give. Said away. you're hired. That's it. Like, yeah. you're not allowed to take anybody else on these tours. Well, no, they just what they do is give us a guaranteed wage. Okay. And then you just don't guide other people. And my dad wouldn't let me take anybody musky fishing. They, those were ours. Okay. And so what would, uh, way I got started, uh, I was hooked on fishing from the time I can remember fishing. Mm -hmm. I, I can remember my first fish. It was a crappie caught through the ice. Uh, I was probably three or four years old. Oh, really? I can still remember the smell uh, uh, of fish and wood burning and the sound of a of a lantern and i can remember this little orange bobber going down oh and man I pulled it up hand over hand and this crappie came out and my dad was hollering at me for something it was because i was you know but back in those days we didn't use little reels you just pull up the line i was putting the line on the stove oh, man. and so the line is melting as i'm <laughs> plugging in and everything but uh I still remember that, and as a as a little kid before, I, okay, he would uh, take me pan fishing and you know, walleye fishing uh, in, in the spring. But when it came time for muskies, it was okay. You got to stay home now. Really? And uh, we killed him back then, and he'd bring home these great big muskies, that great big teeth and big eyeballs, and it just my heart would start beating when I just would would look at him. And I begged him, uh, begged him to come along, but he he said okay. He drew a line in the in our backyard and made a swing set and i had to stand behind this line and cast not this way or this way straight overhand because we're in boats and these mm -hmm. are dangerous lures mm -hmm. and i had to be able to cast under the swing set into the box the box is about this big eight out of ten times he said well you can do that you can come along yeah well, by the time I was six years old, I could hit that thing eight out of ten how, times. How long? Did, how much were you practicing on a regular basis? Well, I was there. Uh, we had a. If I just got on my bike, I could take five pedals and coast down a hill, down a hill, and I was at a little reservoir. Okay. And, and my and I had a, a Fluger scale cast bait casting reel, non free spool, and an old uh, steel rod, a little tackle box with some silver daredevils in it. And I could go there anytime I wanted, as long as I had my orange life jacket on. I was there from the time the sun came up <laughs> until dark. You had to get some food, yeah. Well, I was just fishing, and I didn't eat very much. I still don't <laughs> when I'm uh, fishing. But anyway, uh, I was there every day, all day. Mm -hmm. And then and you're developing your mechanical skills doing that. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, uh, I was six when I could hit it, and my mom intervened and said, hey, you promised. When he do that, you got to take him, and he did, and that's when I learned how to row a boat. I didn't get, to, <laughs> I didn't get to fish until we were anchored, and I remember we had a, it's a great boat, a Grumman sport boat. Okay. They're fourteen odd feet long, forty two inches wide, hundred and fourteen pounds, and uh, I had to sit on two cushions, and I had the oars up here, 
and I couldn't, if I got up real good, I could see over the gunnels, but I couldn't see real good. And my dad, I'd be like this. My dad say, okay, pull on the right oar. Okay. Now push on the left oar, push on the left oar and pull on the right oar. Okay. Good. Good. Pull on both oars. Good. And he's going, doom, 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 right. you know, hitting all the spots. And then we'd, so you, he was having you be your little motor. I was his electric Indian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, a, it was a wonderful way to grow up. And the discipline that, that he instilled in me in terms of developing my mechanical skills before I got in the water is something that is uh, very, 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 very valuable. Awesome. It's like going, if you're going to go duck hunting, okay. here, here's a shotgun. Go out and shoot a duck. Good luck. Right. You need to practice your mechanical skills at anything uh, right. before you go in the field. Very but true. so anyway, that's kind of how how I got uh, started. So you've been, I, I want to, so the people that don't know you, I mean, like I want to, I'm really glad that you shared how you got into fishing. And then that's like just the start of your story. The reality is like you've been doing something like that since, since you were six, uh, like when it comes to fishing, something that you're like, makes you excited and the act of discovery has occurred. Yeah. Um, that's something that we kind of, we chatted about yesterday. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious of like how, what happened after that? Because you, uh, we, we know you because of makelure.com. Uh, it's a website that is part of Illumilite's uh, brand. It's very much something that you are passionate about when it comes to teaching people how to make their own lures, how to make their own thing that they can then go and have their own act of discovery. Um, it's something that you, clearly are passionate about and something that you've done most of your life but you it's not just the fishing thing it's like making things at the same time and that's also seems to be a part of you so where did did, did you learn that when you were little as well that you liked making things as well um <laughs> where i grew up nobody had anything okay and uh, including money and the conversation would uh, as a child that i heard a thousand times uh, Somebody would be looking at something that someone had purchased and say, hmm, I think I could make that. It'd be some old Swedish guy. <laughs> I can make that for $15. And really? So we made everything. Okay. We, just anything you could make, you, you would make, uh, partly because of uh, the economics mm -hmm. and partly because where do we get it? We didn't have Amazon or eBay or the internet. You had a little hardware store in town, and you're lucky if you could buy a, a hook that you needed. Mm -hmm. And so you you make do, okay, and you uh, create what you need. So when did you make your first lure? Oof. Long, 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 long time back. Uh, as a kid, you know, six, seven years old, my dad would uh, be melting lead on top of a wood stove in the basement with a old vice grip and a uh, sardine can, and we'd uh, carve take a board of uh, oak usually and then you carve out whatever and make a mold out of it yeah. and we'd make uh, uh, lead heads uh, that went on a lure called a musky hound or just a, a lead weight that went ahead of a bunch of bucktail and so we'd be tying bucktails and and that uh so i was tying flies like little simple black gnats when i was six years old um, it's very kind simple of wild to, to me that you i mean most of your story echoes your childhood and uh it's i got a little bit of goosebumps because i'm recently a dad uh, mm -hmm. i've got two little boys i've got a mm -hmm. two-year-old and a nine-month-old and like i'm very aware of how much fathers impact their boys and like what i hear from you is this how deeply your dad's love for fishing and 
kind of like also separation at a certain point. Like you have to be able to do certain things in order to come with me because it's not necessarily safe for my three-year-old to come out on the water with me, that kind of stuff. But also like that's a lot of care and love at the same time because he, he wants you to come. He wants you to be skilled, but he also wants it to be good experience for both of you. Like, I don't know. Let me, how, how, how much did your father impact you at that age? Because like, I, well, to me, a, it seems huge. It was He's a, a mountain. It, it was a great uh, impact because he unlock the door but back then things were much different now uh, as a parent we think boy we've got to make sure that we get little johnny to do this and we do this and then for me it was okay uh, we're going fishing uh, saturday if you make sure if the wood is all cut if the lawn is mowed all the chores are done you've eaten your green beans you haven't you, then you get to go mm -hmm. and if you don't do these things i'm going without you because i'm going mm -hmm. that's a lot different than how we do it today today it's all about the kid back then it was about the the creature whether it be a deer or whether it be a muskie or whether it be a whatever mm -hmm. i'm gonna go do this you need to pay your dues and then you can also come along okay that's a lot different so uh it seems like there's something about nature there that I'd love for you to talk about because like it's about the creature and something oh. it's something about the wild. It's like actually, what is it that is there that um, it's the natural world? Okay. Uh, there's something magic to me about uh, the natural world. Okay. Um, you said something to me and my buddy yesterday that I wanted to bring back up. You said, you know, when I've discovered all the mysteries of the natural world then i'll come join you in the digital world <laughs> yeah and, which i got a good chuckle out of because like you know this feels that way i think that people tend to be pretty extreme in either way like you either it's all natural or it's all digital and i think there's a happy medium there somewhere I but i'm super curious about um this mystery because it keeps drawing you back and it's and is it a love for it is it just like a romance what what is it about like sitting in a boat or standing on a shore and fishing that keeps bringing you back. Cause people don't do in my, the people that I know anyways, there's not many people that do the same thing over and over and over and over again. At a certain point they lose the romance or they lose the love uh, for it. You know what I mean? That's the beauty about the natural world. There's never the same thing. You can do the same thing over and over if you wish. Yeah. But I do the same thing over and over. Um, each day is different and I don't know it's just sort of hard to explain um, there's something about the natural world where there is a consistency to it even though it's inconsistent um, the digital world frightens me because these things create a reliance all of a sudden I depend upon uh, my cell phone I don't want to have to depend upon it. What if we have another Carrington event and a great big electromagnetic wave blasts through the Earth's atmosphere and takes out everything? Um, I don't want to have to be relying on that stupid cell phone. I don't have to. I, I mean, how many phone numbers do you know? Right. Uh, all this digital stuff makes us stupid and it makes us disconnected from the world in which we, we live by creating some artificial bunch of nonsense. 
Uh, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> the ironic part is it's like this will be on the internet, which, you know, which is always so fun for me when it comes to like these kinds well, of interviews. Like this is how people are going to be able to well, hear it. it. It'll be on if their machine works. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I, I like that perspective, though, from, from where you sit in yeah. regards to you yeah. don't want to rely on this. You want to be able to be self-reliant. Absolutely, um, man. So let's talk about self-reliance. Is that just is that also something that was just instilled to me when you were young and you're like, it's something that you carry and value forward because obviously when you make things uh, it's very clear that how quickly your mechanics and mind work together i've watched your videos that are on Illumilite's youtube and on makelure.com and all these other places and you it's clear you know what you're doing and you don't even really need to be looking at your hands sometimes as to like when you're forming some goop uh, as you call uh, the products that they you know that we sell but uh, we're is that just another mechanical thing that you just picked up over time or that self-reliance and trust in yourself to like, I can make this damned if I know <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> when I was a kid, anytime I got a lure, uh -huh. if it had a lip that was bendable, I'd bend that lip to see what it would do. Okay. I'd tie it on backwards mm -hmm. and see what it would do. Mm -hmm. We'll see what it does in the water. Yeah, I built a lot of little airplanes and kites and all that stuff as a kid. So I was always interested in that sort of thing. And so when you've been around as long as I have and tied as many lures on as I have and bent as many lips and, uh, mm -hmm. and so on, uh, you should begin to have some kind of an idea <laughs> <laughs> of how to make these things. Yeah. 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 So when did you, so you made your first lure when you were six um, and then I continued making lures all the way through. And what, what was funny, I'd make these things and they twirl around in circles. They wouldn't do anything right. And the only way I could get them to work might be to snap them and jerk them. And so I, I was way ahead of the curve on the, uh, on that side, just simply because a lot of the stuff I made didn't work. Didn't work. <laughs> so maybe let's move forward a little bit in time, um, in regards to like, you obviously grew up, you went to college on some, I'm assuming you went to university and, uh, you, you just earlier, you said you majored in, uh, Minored in poli sci? Minor in poli sci, major in English and wound up with a bachelor of science degree. Okay. So, so I have a BS in English. That's which great. is maybe obvious. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you you're quite articulate, and you are you've written some books. Uh, you've uh, you've I, written I, a ton of articles. I've written a lot of articles. I co-authored a book uh, with some guys a long time ago on uh, artificial lures. Okay, but uh, I've been thinking about writing a book. But I think you should. Hmm. I think there's that's uh, the world could use uh, uh, your perspective. I think. Um, uh, but I the reason why I bring up that is because you have done something that's similar to me. Like you were a producer for a long time as well. Um, and it, it's sometimes hard to see people's stories and how they actually weave together, but it was really interesting to hear a little bit of yours yesterday. And I'm really excited to share it with the, the world that I live in. And you, you were a producer, but you also were like a host of a TV show. You've done, you brought all the, your childhood loves of fishing and making things into different contexts. And at that time it was TV, radio, print, um, and obviously it's online as well. Um, how did you enjoy that dance? Did you not enjoy that dance with like interacting in those worlds? Cause you obviously got to flex your creative muscles and you got to make things still just different contexts. I really enjoyed uh, shooting mm -hmm. TV and uh, putting together things i enjoyed that a lot I, i'd rather be uh behind the camera than in front of the camera actually. oh really yeah it's really a challenge to get a live bite uh 
oh yeah camera and i really enjoyed enjoyed that that part of it you you so that why did you enjoy that part of it what about that challenge is it actually exciting for you or is that do i keep tapping into the same thing where you're just like well, i don't know if i can actually describe that i don't know it, it, the way i look at it in fishing is uh i fish to experience the fish okay and i've only got a limited number of senses like sight sound taste uh, tactile mm -hmm. and when i can see a fish before i even make the cast and then watch him come up and eat it um i feel my heart rate going up and i like when my heart rate goes up yeah that excitement yeah and there's there's certain types of things that just continue to excite me and it's experiencing that fish and the more senses you can involve in it the the more fun it is one of my favorite things that i'm enjoying about you even in this interview is that you're um you're really here like you're actually present um and like and I, i'm sure you experienced this and what you were talking about earlier when it comes to the disconnect um and i i, I don't go back to timothy leary now you be here now <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> but like i i don't think necessarily that you know technology and all that um is the cause i think that all it does is, is expose people for like oh, where they naturally are that's that's, that's that's at least how i view it that's kind of interesting because yeah. like i think people have been distracted since the dawn of time they just that we just took different forms i mean look at old articles about like the kaleidoscope for instance um they thought that kids were going to be ruined when because they were just walking down the street looking through a kaleidoscope and they're like they're they're going to go crazy and like which is because people were just like so that's that, where it started yeah, it was, it was the kaleidoscope <laughs> but it's it's really fascinating if you look it up because it's true they were like there's like all these articles of people freaking out that kids are going to be ruined because of a kaleidoscope which is hilarious to me i was like oh that's well they said the same thing about elvis yep and the same thing about tv radio the, like, i mean like well it was true about tv and radio but anyway <laughs> <laughs> uh i think it's just bigger but yeah i i'm i like the presence that you bring into rooms um even if like you have different opinions than other people you you don't it's not like something where it's overbearing it's just like this is who i am and i'm gonna interact in the world how i choose um and to me that's really respectable regardless of if we had different opinions about something. And I think that's, uh, if you're gonna write a book, maybe that's what I would love to hear about is like that presence that you bring into something. And that's just me being, asking you a selfish, like maybe go that way. Cause that would be super fascinating to read. Um, and I, I was an English lit major and a philosophy minor as well. So I do feel some kindred spirit there when it comes to how you roll in the world. Um, what, uh, when it comes to current days like how how are you how much do you get to fish now how much do you get to interact i mean you're semi-retired now like we still work with you at makelure.com i just still do I stuff with you i basically have tried to retire from other people's calendars okay uh, in the 22 or however many years i shot the uh, hunt for big fish i was traveling all the time mm -hmm. uh, i think it took me through 89 countries total in Man. 22 years and uh, now I'm home. I wake up in the morning. I get up really early, 4.35 o'clock. That's just me. I've always been that way. And I don't have a dragon to slay. Uh, okay. I don't have to worry about how am I going to get to Africa or South America and how they, 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 all that stuff. And so what I've retired from are, are, are the things that are half killing me. Uh, my 
arms are half shot. I got epicondylitis really bad in both of them. I got a torn tendon. I've got a hernia from marlin fishing. I've got a shoulder that they won't even insure anymore. So rather than your just your body's quite beat up at this it point. It got a little beat up yeah. from uh, from a little bit too much um, activity. But anyway, um, what I've decided to do is spend the the rest of my years uh, fishing with the people uh, who I've made friends with over the over the years, uh, spending time with my grandkids, and then uh, trying to share uh, with the world anything that I can uh, that they're interested in. Uh, I'm especially interested in. Uh, freeing people's minds if you free your mind your butt will follow <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, in terms of fishing uh, there's so much nonsense and superstition uh, and so on uh, i just want to uh, share what i know uh, about lure making and uh, you know just help help people become more connected to what they're what they're doing mm -hmm. you have had an analogy yesterday about uh, which i wanted you to tell the story of again and that reminds me of it uh, you want to help people get connected um and the analogy you talking about like uh playing music to uh, their own drumbeat could you could yeah, you yeah, yeah. like that, what, that to me is like when we first started the uh, the make lure thing mm -hmm. um i was adamant about trying to be really broad to show people you can do anything that you can think of and so on and so on and then we had people who oh, were kind of afraid of it a little bit, where they needed a more specific uh, instructions and so on. And that's fine. But Almost it, like Legos, like you can, build, like yeah, you don't need, you yeah. just get to build it. Yeah. And so it seemed to me like uh, sheet music. You know, sheet mu music is wonderful, uh, but most people die with their music still in them. And um, what I wanted to do is instead of, give somebody the sheet music to twinkle, twinkle, little star, and they could learn to play twinkle for the rest of their lives. What I wanted to do was just sort of um, unleash them uh, so that they could just jam, uh, listen to a bass beat, listen to a, uh, a rhythm, and then just start playing along with it. Playing their own song. Playing their own song, yeah. I think that's beautiful. Uh, I think it, that's... Uh... Maybe that could be part two of the book that you write is uh, helping people unlock that part of themselves. Because I think that's the, I, to me, that is really human and honest. And it's also like sometimes people just forget in, in the crazy that life kind of throws at you. Well, fishermen in, in, in particular are an odd group. Um, we may share a similar passion, but some guys might get to fish every single day. You ask me how often do I get to fish whenever I want to. I get in my jump and go mm -hmm. sometimes i'll fish 20 days in a row sometimes i might go three or four days without uh, fishing but um the point uh i guess is that you can love to fish really a lot and if you get to fish every weekend one day that's four or five days a month that's not enough mm -hmm. anyone who does anything like golf try to be a good golfer and play once a week mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't. You have to maintain not only the mechanical side, but mostly the where are they, what's going on. And, and so it's a very difficult thing for somebody who doesn't get to fish every day to kind of stay, you know, in tune. And so it becomes, well, how do I do it? Where do I go? What do I do? And uh, it, it, it becomes too uh, sort of uh, frustrating. 
And um, anything you actually have to have a relationship with the natural world in order to yeah, keep interacting. Yeah, exactly. With it. And it's a difference between whether they're your fish or they're somebody else's fish. Somebody comes with me and we go catch some fish or stuff. They're catching my fish. I go with somebody that I don't know, you know, here cast over there. It's not my fish, it's their fish. They found them. Mm. And I like to have my own fish. <laughs> I feel like that might be something you got from your dad. Like I keep remembering him like, no, I'm, I'm going to go regardless. And you get, you get to come maybe yeah. <laughs> at the, on the weekend if yeah. you've done all your chores properly yeah. Yeah. or like, you know, the, yeah. uh, the muskies are mine. The side of it too, uh, we get, because you don't have the confidence, confidence that comes with experience mm -hmm. and time on the water, it's easy to get superstitious and uh, believe in so, voodoo. Okay. Unpack that a little bit for me. Cause like, what do you mean? What do you mean by superstitious? Ah, okay. Here's one of my f most favorite observations. Huh? I, I used to go fish a river called the Umpqua okay. in uh, uh, Oregon. Kind of a tough river to fish. It's a steelhead river and the guys are pretty secretive there. Okay. And um, that's fine with me. I don't, I just as soon find them myself because it, it just, it's more fun. It's more fun. Yeah. Uh, and uh, anyhow, uh, I had located a bunch of fish. I, Take up binoculars and the polarized glasses and get up as high as you can. And just, you know, watch the river, watch the river. And if you look at any river, you'll look, all of a sudden there'll be a little hole where you can see. And then it flows along. And you go find another hole that you can see. And, you know, it's just a, like a flat spot in the water. Mm -hmm. And I'd spotted these steelheads. And there was a guy fishing this spot. And I thought, well, I'll just wait for him to leave. He was uh, 50, 60 yards away from where the fish were holding in this little basin. And he would make 10 casts. And then he'd put on another fly. 10 casts, 10 casts. And I sat there for an hour and a half watching him in this little, he's got a little sheep fur thing. Mm -hmm. And it's just getting full of flies that he's tied on and tried and tied on and tried. And as he's tying on his 150th fly probably, I see a flash and a steelhead pops up in front of him in the little slot that he was fishing. Oh man. So he puts on his purple fladeau or whatever and throws it out. Girl, he gets hooked up and I hear him, fish on, fish on. I finally figured him out. I finally figured the SOBs out. And he's running down the river catching this fish. <laughs> and uh, then he went away and I went up and caught a couple of them where they <laughs> actually are you know with upstream cast doing stuff you're not supposed to do there's all sorts of stuff you're not supposed to do for some reason that actually works very well but anyway i show up at this little little eating place establishment that's on the river and this guy's sitting at a table tying this purple fladoos here this is what they're hitting man i made one cast first cast he's passing everybody oh yeah 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 that's that's a typical fishing situation. Fishermen are kind of like muskies. They like to follow. Uh, Fact is that the world of angling, and this is a, the beginning of my book, I think. Okay. Um, the world of angling is like a sphere with a billion keyholes in it. And everywhere you go, there's a guy with his eye pressed up to a keyhole. Say <laughs> the world of fishing uh, is black and it looks kind of like a floor mat. <laughs> the guy next to him says oh no 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 you're completely wrong i catch way more fish than you do the world of fishing uh, looks like a skull tattoo on a forearm <laughs> and on and on and the fact of the matter is they're both right right they're just having their own little perspective that's right 
and they don't often leave that little hole for fear they maybe won't find it again or for fear that maybe somebody else will get it. But the fact of the matter is what you're seeing is true, but it's a two-dimensional view. And if you're going to get a three-dimensional view of what's really there, you need to look through every keyhole that your lifetime allows you. I think that would be a good start to the book. Um, one of the things that you keep reminding me of is, um, and I don't think you're as old as he was, but forgive me about this, is my grandpa. Because like I actually I probably am. Uh, my, I haven't really fished since my grandpa died. Mm -hmm. Um, and something that like it, in the last two days that I've gotten to know you, I obviously heard some stories when I first started working at Illumilite about you and then I got to see some of your videos and everything like that. But, um, obviously in person is always better, uh, when it comes to meeting someone and getting to know them a little bit. And my, my grandpa like was just habitual when it comes, when it came to fishing, he would just go at super specific times and like he had his ponds and his lakes that he would go to. Um, but he had a bum leg, he had lost his leg. And so he, he couldn't really get around like he used to, but he would take me and my little brother, Calvin, mm -hmm. and we'd go to this one pond that I will never forget. Um, and that's where I caught like the biggest fish that I ever caught. It was like a 10 pound bass. Like, and, and you, know, you remember it? Remember oh, I remember it like it was yesterday. detail yes. about it. Yeah. Um, but I haven't gone since, but it's something that like, since I've had children, I'm like, I should probably pick this back up on some level, but I'm like. Has it been too long? Is it? It's because it's not like it doesn't bike, matter. You know the beauty. So what do you tell people that like me that haven't done it in ages? That's the beauty of fishing. It doesn't matter if you're tall, if you're short, if you're fat, if you're thin, if you're fast, if you're slow. If you want to just sit and watch a bobber, or if you want to learn the name of every insect and learn how to tie it, if you, it doesn't matter, there is no. This is a completely organic sport. It is not a synthetic sport where you have rules and things. Go out and turn over the rock, see what's under there, poke it with a stick and see what it does. That's what fishing is. No rules. Only the fish and game department. You know, right. you can't break, <laughs> break those rules. <laughs> right. But nobody tells you when to start. Nobody tells you when to stop. Right. All these other synthetic sports, you got a guy with a striped shirt, a whistle, a clock, some sort of a ball, a, a certain minimum quorum of people, a whole bunch of stuff. Fishing, you don't need any. Just get up and go. Just you. Just go. You know, it's fun to fish with friends and stuff too, but if they don't get up early, I mean, huh. You're going without Just them. go. <laughs> yeah, it's it's about the fish. To me, it is anyway. Okay. That's awesome. So, uh, favorite fish that you've ever caught? Do you have one? Do you have maybe top maybe top two or something? Maybe to, give me one of the top five moments of like when your heart raced to the point where you're like, wow, um, this is something real. Like like the story that you were talking about when your dad brought home a muskie. Like you, you know, that you, you didn't even get to catch that one, but just seeing that fish with its teeth and its big eyes obviously did something to your child. Yeah. Heart. I wanted one on the end of my line. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but like you had to have more of those experiences oh, cause you kind of keep, you going, you keep going back to the well. Yeah. Yeah. I've had so many that I, it's hard to, uh, there's one in particular. I remember we, I went to West Africa to okay. fish for a uh, uh, blue marlin. Okay. And I'd never fished for blue marlin in my life. Blue marlin, uh, those are huge. They can be. Yeah. And uh, I 
talked to lots of guys who were good marlin fishermen, and many of the things they said didn't make any sense. You can only put 35 pounds of drag on them. Uh, otherwise, you know, run an 80-pound mono. Um, you can't do this. You can't do that. And uh, so I built Was that it. all superstition or was that? Well, I wasn't sure. So okay. I was going to find out. And uh, I first I took the rods that they're using, these big boat rods and stuff, and I built a little device in my workshop that measures pounds in, pounds out. Okay. So if you put 40 pounds here, how much you get on the end? Well, I found out that... Uh, the design of these rods uh, is not to uh, create any leverage advantage for the angler, that's for sure. And so I uh, built these little teeny 52-inch long rods. I went to a factory and uh, cut patterns and rolled up these rods out of S-glass, and we put a little 30-inch uh, uh, flag of graphite in the base of it so it is absolutely unbendable. There'll be a point where it bends, and then it quits bending totally and we figured it out so that it would uh load at 50 pounds and not bend anymore after that okay and then i, I got a seven pound weight yeah and nine months before the i had to go on this trip i mean this sounds stupid crazy but i just go like this while i'm watching tv with a weight and just turn and then when my uh, deltoids right. and my uh, my thing would go liquid I just put it down and rest for a minute and then pick it up, driving the car anywhere I was going. I was, right. I was you were working that. that muscle out. Yeah. Right. And then I'd also figured that uh, when I figured out testing all these other rods, they have very long butts and that butt length behind the handle does indeed give you leverage. When you increase the rod length out on the other side, it takes away leverage. But by creating a butt that's way out here, now my hand is here and I'm cranking. The only muscle that's used is a deltoid. Oof. And so I made these little short butts, like about that long, to get get in here. So you get your bicep and everything else. Biceps, involved. triceps, yeah. trapezius, a whole bunch of different muscles involved. And um, before I left for the trip, I spooled two fifty wides and two eighty wides. Uh, these are big reels that hold thousands of yards without stopping. Uh, we went to this place, and a uh, long story short, uh, we caught eighteen marlin, I believe. In eighteen uh, in. Uh, 10 days the biggest one they estimated at 1300 pounds holy cow and i was with a crew that had never fished marlin ever so they didn't you know backing up or wiring was a big big For issue context that is that is a if you don't know that is a boatload that is a crazy amount of marlin yeah and uh they averaged i know that and i don't fish yeah. I, <laughs> like <laughs> they were the the smaller fish were probably 450 500 pounds and the longest it took me to land one was 28 minutes. The quickest was 18 when we sort of got it Get down. out of here. And uh, what I was doing is running the drags. You sure you're not just pulling my leg right now? No, I've got it on tape. Just press play. Jeez. <laughs> but <laughs> what I learned is that you can put all the heat you want, you know, till the, up to the line breaks. And what I was doing differently is with, the minute they would bite, I would you know, listen to the ping on the line. You can okay. hear it before the line breaks. You can hear ding, 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 ding. Uh, and so what I would do is just tighten the drag really, really tight when they were smoking out and then just listen to the ping. And the minute they stopped, the moment they stopped, we would just get on them real as fast as you could reel, crank it back up and start lifting, take off, ping, ping, have to back off a little. But what that does is forces them to stay into high gear. Mm. when you don't put enough pressure they go into low gear you can have a two three hour fight and a and a dead fish and at, you're gonna at yeah. the end 
And uh, which you don't want. No. And uh, I did a little calculation. Um, there's about a 20 to one ratio of fish flesh in the water as in the air. If I took a 10 pound bass weighed in the air, he's 10 pounds. I drop him in the water. He's going to weigh about eight ounces due to the specific gravity. So a thousand pound fish can take 50 pounds to move it. So if I'm running 35 pounds of drag, I've got a thousand pound Marlin, he dies. Starts sinking to the bottom. It's gone. Right. So anyway, that, that was one that I really remember because I came home with a hernia and we had some uh, great footage. There's another one. Uh, I had a hunch about a uh, big catfish in uh, Suriname. Where's that? Uh, Suriname borders uh, Guyana on one side and uh, French Guyana is on the other side. It used to be called Dutch Guyana. Okay. And uh, we took a, I think it took two or three days to get up this river, uh, 250, 300 mile run. And uh, we caught a How cat. How many people are with you? Uh, this is this is when you're doing your fishing doing show. The show, yeah. yeah. It, it was my cameraman, me, and uh, my dear friend uh, Cesar Calor, a fellow who got killed in a plane crash here oh, a few years ago. Sorry about just, that. He's a unbelievable guy. And his friend Shockey Kurt. So there's a and, uh, the guy that drove the boat, Paul. So we had a contingent. Just Paul. <laughs> yeah. We we had a contingent that uh, went up and. Uh, we caught a catfish that was eight and a half feet long, as big around what? as an oil barrel. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that the that, that catfish could get that big. I didn't either. Um, if you go through the, there's a guy named Michael Golding that's written most of the material about a catfish in the Amazon. Okay. And the largest one they had ever recorded uh, was eight feet long, and it weighed 397 pounds. Holy cow. And I remember that one really well because I thought, I was going to die. It's the only fish that I can remember catching that I wasn't ready to catch another one immediately. Really? But I was a little older then, uh, too. I maybe wasn't as good a shape as I was in right. my youth. Right. Were you uh, in a boat? Or were you yeah, on the we ship? had a, a thirty a, a boat that was made out of two boats. Okay. So I split in half, and they put it. And I had purposely taken a reel uh, that, and reduced the amount of line on it because that really increases your drag. And I'm running a 130-pound um, mono, and I didn't want to have a belt uh, because if you get jerked in and pulled overboard, this is a really bad place to, to do that. Yeah, you could be, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And, and but this, I'm hooking this thing, and it starts slipping drag, and I'm thinking, there's oh, something wrong, you know, because I, I couldn't pull drag out with both hands. And uh hooked it up, and he started turning the boat around backwards and pulling us upstream. And yeah, then, this is a big yeah and then it came to the surface i thought it was a bull shark sometimes bull sharks will follow tarpon up into these rivers and oh, uh, many 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 miles but it came up it was just this giant catfish so you guys let that sucker go how's yeah that? there's a release if you look on uh i don't know where it is king kong catfish it's probably a youtube thing okay. and it just has the release of it Okay. And I think within 30 days, there was about a million and a half views. Right. Of it. That right. was one that was very, very memorable. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the, it, the mouth on that probably could swallow a person. Um, It could eat you. It That fish could have eaten, the if you took the world record channel cat, the world record flathead, he could eat both of them. Jeez. So, but yeah, very, very big one. I remember my first muskie really well too. Okay. That was that's. How old were you for your first muskie? I was nine. Okay, so it took wait. You took three years of like sitting in that boat till you got to actually fish for one. Oh, I was fishing for them, but I couldn't hook them. Okay, okay. Yeah, but my uncle didn't want to come along anymore. Uh, it was, it would be like, okay, Larry, now you can cast, and I had this little, you know, 
it was a Fluger scale cast with a 54 pound line on it. So at the end of a cast, your retrieve rate, it was maybe a three to one reel to begin with. And so my dad and the guys would get, you know, they'd cast a musky spot. Okay, there, now you can cast. And it'd be like, I'd get a bite and they'd hit him, hit him. I, I, I didn't even know what they meant. And, and so I, I would lose them. And then uh, my dad got me this lure called a bonnet. It's about this long, this big around. It's just tapered on both ends. It's got a propeller on each end. It mm -hmm. has one hook in the back, one hook on the bottom, two hooks on each side. So it's one, two, three, four, six hooks on it. And it got bit so many times there was no paint on it and it wouldn't float anymore. Okay. But I had never hooked a muskie on it. And uh, uh, the summer I was nine, we were anchored and uh, my dad and uh, Arnie, his friend, were eating lunch and I'm <laughs> casting and my dad said, take that lure out of the water. There's not enough water here to hold a fish. And just as I was lifting the bait out of the water, uh, Muskie uh, ate it and oh, man, man, I hooked that guy. <laughs> and he's cartwheeling and so on and my dad pulled out his pistol and so they used to shoot. Oh, you, they used to shoot him. Yeah, oh, shoot right. him in the cheek. He called it his lead net. <laughs> I didn't know that. You, that's what happened. In Wisconsin, oh man, it was terrible. In Hayward, Wisconsin, where there was a there was a big musky territory, people would shoot him. I mean, they shoot holes in their boats. They do. <laughs> It's just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Different type for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think can you you can't still do anything like that on them. I'm assuming at least you're not supposed to. I don't know if it, I mean, if you have a muskie that's of legal size, I don't think you can shoot it while it's still in the water on your hook. I mean, once you get it home, you can probably right. shoot, yeah, shoot it. it. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a matter of landing nets cost $10 then, and they were crummy. And oh, so if you okay. land one in a landing, it'd just wreck your landing net. And the best okay. way, and we ate them back then, everybody right. killed muskies, or most people did. Right. Uh the safest way is to beach them. That's a really nice, easy way to do it. And, right. You know, if you can do that. Right. But these days, people have nets and cradles, and they know how to handle them. And right. That's I, that is interesting. That you, I mean, it would just wreck your net, and that makes sense. I mean, like I said, oh, we've got it. Like it's done. Mm -hmm. and, and you have you to realize, did, you know, was we, it good? Was we it good? Is that was it good when you ate it? Oh yeah, it's muskie's very very good. I eating. don't think I've ever had muskie. No, you don't want to have it. Eat walleyes. They're that's their only redeeming quality, anyways. That okay. they make good table fare. That's what they're here for. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I used to look at walleyes as a form of punishment because my mom didn't want us fishing muskies until we had the freezer uh, pretty full of walleyes. Really? <laughs> so <laughs> that's. All, I mean, back to, to then, like you were. At, you were actually bringing that food home because, like you said, it was a different time. And at that point, yeah. like money, I mean, like you were, you were literally fishing t to eat. And like, yeah, freezing. I mean, we had food, but, but yeah, fish, but like that was yeah. also part of it. It wasn't just this game. That, oh, definitely. Yeah. It yeah. was an excuse, kind of, you know, just like hunting, you know, it's right. It's, yeah, we got to have food. <laughs> so I don't have that many more questions for you because I actually really enjoy hearing about your story. And I think that's what people at the end of the day really want to hear about is like who you are and the kind of experience of what you did. But I do want to leave the, the floor open for you if there are things that you'd like to share about your experiences working with like Illumilite or Mike Fopel or as you, what, what, what do you call him? 
the goop king. the goop king the goop king yeah um goop is what you call the products that you know they it's, sell which is wonderful it's all goop to me yeah it doesn't matter what kind it is it's just goop um and you can kind of see it. obviously people that listen you can't see it but behind us we're actually sitting in mike's shop right now and all the lures that are here uh larry taught mike how to make uh on some level which is pretty awesome and there's like a whole bunch of them can you maybe help me understand what some of these are for and we might be able to you know, well they're most of the stuff i see hanging here uh, is uh, related to muskies okay um even those back there in the corner yeah yeah okay. that's all musky stuff i see a double wobble i see a bunch of double wobble yeah uh some mr wiggly's this is an interesting one this is such a good idea we make jointed baits and uh, sometimes the joints are kind of a pain what Mike did this is so clever he put uh, a strip of some sort of fabric in here uh -huh. I think the first time he did it he was telling me he used like the the elastic on his underwear or something but uh, just molded that uh, into just placed it into the mold molded it and made a great uh, it's just a super idea and most of this stuff, I met Mike, I had been, I had, uh, <laughs> if you go into my shop, it's uh, archaeologically organized. As in like, you know where everything is? Well, it's about layers. Okay. If uh, you want to, <laughs> you go down to the bottom layer, you might find the wood era. Oh yeah. Or right, the, the cedar yeah. or the uh, rock maple era. Okay. And there'll be parts and things at that layer that okay. all fit together with something over on this table or that table. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And I had just entered uh, 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 what I was would would call the um, the goop era. The goop era, okay. Because I was trying to find ways that I could make uh, glide baits more consistently than uh, out of wood. The problem with wood is the specific gravity varies so much from tree to tree, or even within a single tree. Right. The density uh, is different. So the way it's going to go in the water or float or anything is yeah, going to be different. All of all of those things and. Uh, uh, I would been I've been shopping at a place uh, it's called the Hub Hobby Shop, great hobby shop in uh, Minneapolis. Awesome with all the old uh, you know remote control stuff. It was yeah. like a man's hobby shop rather than a you know fabric and all uh -huh. that kind of stuff. And uh, I've been buying some goop there, and uh, I, I <laughs> this is really funny. I tried to uh, I forgot all about this. I had to, I want, <laughs> this is so bad. I wanted to make a little uh, sucker, like okay. a little size sucker. And so I got a, a live, a real one, and I was going to make a mold out of it. Right. And so I got a, I think I was using what we call now RC3, which is two-part urethane that's actually used to make a make the final product. Well, oh. I was going to use that for the mold. Oh, no. And so I made a nice uh, mold box, and I poured in just like said, you know, put this little critter in there and put it on and this stuff has an exothermic uh, reaction so it oh. develops quite a lot of heat right so, I so you're like cooking this <laughs> put it in there and it's going all of a sudden i see a bunch of guts oozing out one side some blood coming out the oh, other no. side I, you know i don't know how long it's going to take to set i hadn't used it before i don't know and i feel it <laughs> man it's really warm and you know i guess five minutes or ten minutes went by and i you know, it feels like it's, I open it up and it steams and it was the most perfectly 
cooked little sucker. The flake, <laughs> the meat was flaky and moist. Did you eat it? I thought about it. <laughs> and I, anyway, I cleaned it out of the mold and it wasn't so good. Right. And you're like, wait, this is wrong. I said, eh, something here. So I saw this phone number on the, uh, on the package and I dialed the phone number and this lady answered and I said, can I speak to whoever's in command of this place? <laughs> sure. I'll send you down to him. And send Mike, it down to him, which is such a great term. for Yeah. And I thought, hmm, that's good. Yeah. The king should be on the top. But anyway, um, we started talking. I think Mike maybe recognized my voice or I don't know. And he said, are you, uh, I said, yeah, yeah. The guy with the TV show and I'm interested in doing this. And he, you know, was as polite enough. The races after that. He was polite enough not to make fun of my stupidity. <laughs> and I said, "Oh man, yeah, here's what you need." And uh, he shared his knowledge of uh, molding and mm -hmm. casting, and uh, that to this day he still he holds back. The Goop King holds back, and I'll be working on something sometimes, and like eight months later, oh yeah, you just do this. <laughs> <laughs> But he's yeah, he, and he, he also is quite humble in that regard oh, when yeah. it comes. To, he's he does know his stuff. Oh, he's frightening. Yeah, backwards and forwards. Yeah, he's, he's frightening. And then he just sits back and just smiles at you. Yeah, yeah, lets you kind of flop around because that's part of it. That's right. It is part of it. Yeah, it's just like the fish. Are they your fish or are they my fish? Mm -hmm. uh, when you discover something, it's that act of discovery that makes it yours, and that's the thrill if it's repeatable. It's true. Yeah, that's very true. But anyway, that's how Mike met, and then we created a a, a relationship. And uh, I had always wanted to do the little workshop things, and the guys uh, at the network didn't like didn't want to do it. They didn't think hey, I shouldn't probably do. So just for fun, um, I decided to put one in because a lot of the shows I was doing, I would catch a fish on a lure that I'd made myself and I'd have to kind of keep it on the QT and, you know, mm -hmm. illustrate other, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. other products. And I decided just to, well, let's just see, let's just see. Mm -hmm. And I uh, aired first workshop thing. I can't remember what it was, but I got more emails from that than if I would catch a thousand pound marlin or a big giant fish or something. These were people that were genuinely interested. Right. And I thought, okay, this is important. This is what I'm going to do because these are my people. Right. If they're interested in this, that's the kind of people I, I want to. Uh, right. So with. it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier when you guys like helping them kind of unlock a little bit. Yeah. Uh, like getting a different perspective. They're like, oh, you can do this yourself and you can actually make these things. And uh, beyond that, then you can take that and go have your own active discovery, but you yeah. can do it the entire journey and not just in, at yeah. the pond or yeah. lake. Don't or, worry about what's right or wrong. It's what it's all about is adding to the body of knowledge. And that, that is, if I have a, a mission in life, that's what, what it is. I hope to leave this world where I have added to the body of knowledge in some way. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Well, um, I don't have any other questions for you. Uh, do you have any for me? Cause you, we just met the other day and I, Generally, like on these interviews, want to leave the floor open because you don't know me that well outside of the things that I've, you know, elected to share with you in these brief moments. But um, if you do, that's okay. If not, also okay. Well, I had all my friends at the FBI do a complete background check on you. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, so there's a couple of things that uh, 
you need to be concerned about. That's good. That's knowledge that I was unaware of. So I appreciate that. <laughs> but no, uh, I, I don't have any questions other than uh, when we're going to get together in my workshop and uh, create a bunch of content. The whole point of you and I getting together is to uh, make some more stuff, make some more stuff. And uh, well, we started today yeah. and we're going to keep that thing going. Well, what I'm excited about is to get out and um, actually do some stuff with some of the lure makers that I've corresponded with uh, people that have got uh, unique uh, skills and talents. Yeah. And uh, just go work with them. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. And also my uh, uh, my friends at River to Sea, uh, a lot of the lures that uh, we've developed here, uh, the Whopper Plopper, the first uh, designs were all drawn up at Alumalite. Right. And uh, it'll be fun to get the River to Sea guys and, uh, and uh, you guys all hooked together too with some of this. Uh, as long as you will... Uh, allow me to at least be in the boat one time when we're fishing that would be awesome well i don't have any problem with that cool. just don't just don't throw your lures in the trees that's all i, I won't that. i won't i i promise you that i will practice before we get the chance to go <laughs> fishing right. under the swing set into the bucket. Uh, under the swing into the bucket i'll do it <laughs> okay <laughs> cool all right larry i really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and talk this has been a lot of fun um uh, we're going to be doing a whole bunch of these but i can't wait to actually make some more stuff with you good deal